Okay, let's open up our Bibles. Today we're in Isaiah chapter 9. We're looking at verses 6 and 7. So just two verses to start. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, as we continue our series through Advent. Today, the second Sunday of Advent. Advent is a season of awaiting and anticipating, uh, anticipating the arrival of the Son of God and in his, in his birth, in the incarnation. And so throughout this series, we're looking at who this one who would be born of the Virgin Mary is. Who is Jesus? And today we see that Jesus is the fullness of God. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, help us to uh, not just understand your word today, Lord, but to know you better and to know your son, Jesus Christ. And, and to really be taught by your Holy Spirit what it means to love, worship, and follow Jesus. We offer ourselves up to you as we worship. In Christ's name, amen. You guys know that uh, like a lot of the medications that we use to treat various illnesses today were created to treat other illnesses originally, right? You know that? Like there's a lot of medications. So I was, I was looking into it. I don't know why. I just was. I was looking into it, and I was like, "Oh, what about these medicines?" So um, I'm okay. I'm not. I'm just. I was just curious. So, like, I, so I, I got three deep. And I was like, "Oh, this medication was meant to treat blood pressure, but it turns out it treats male pattern baldness." And then the next one was invented for something, and it was now it's used to treat male pattern baldness. And then I got to the next one, and it was like, "Yeah, this was meant," and now it's used for. Bald guys, and I just, I felt very attacked. I felt like, I felt like, it's like, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's, I mean, I listen, I'm not sensitive about being bald, but I would rather have hair. It's, a, it's, it's better overall. So anyways, I was, I was thinking about this, right? That, that sometimes, like, it, it's kind of amazing, right? Because the body is so connected and everything. And, and these scientists and these doctors, they'll, they'll work hard and they'll create a medication that is good and it's going to do something good, but they have no idea how much more good it can do. It's bigger than they thought. It's, it's more. It's going to accomplish more. And it's, uh, some of us are experiencing this in our faith, or, we're, or, or we are about to. And what I mean is, is you become a Christian and you believe, you believe the gospel, you believe in Jesus. I mean, you really do. But for many of us, we wind up believing only so much about Jesus. And it's not that we're denying other parts about him as much as we just haven't yet discovered it or haven't really come to understand it in scripture yet. And we have settled for a small Jesus. It's, it's the real Jesus, but it's, it's a smaller understanding of him and it's a smaller perspective. And we have not yet discovered how much more Jesus does for the one who believes and understands. I'll be honest, I think... I think some of us get comfortable with Jesus and, and we wind up, we wind up with a relationship with 
the Jesus who lived, died, and rose again, but because we don't understand the fullness that has been made known, our faith is essentially stunted. And today I want us, I want us to see more clearly who this Jesus is. We're gonna see it in just these two verses here, six and seven, and we'll look at, at some others as well, but we're gonna really focus our time here. And, and here's the, the principle that I want us to grasp, and I, and I really think if we come to, to see this, it can change so much more in our lives than we are even anticipating. But the principle is this, the fullness of God in Jesus fulfills the emptiness of humanity. The fullness of God in Jesus Christ is the only thing ultimately that will fulfill the emptiness of humanity. And we're gonna, we're gonna get there. This, this emptiness of humanity is a problem, right? It is, it, is a, it is a need that we have. And the more that we come to understand what that emptiness is and how it works, the better equipped we are, I think, to appreciate and embrace all that Jesus is. Now, Advent is about the arrival of Jesus, anticipating his arrival, and so we're, we're going through that, and we're looking at all these passages that are promising Jesus, and of course, these promises of Jesus go all the way back to the book of Genesis, as we have been reading and hearing and singing so far today. From the very beginning, there have been these promises that one day, the offspring of the woman will arrive, the, the suffering servant, the conquering king. One day a savior will appear, and the savior will take away sin and guilt. One day the savior will, will build a kingdom, right? From, from subtle prophecies to explicit prophecies to these grand promises, we see it over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And here in Isaiah 9, we have one. A famous one, one that, uh, that most people hear around the holidays, whether they go to church or not. It's on Christmas cards. We see it on billboards. We, see, we hear it in movies and in TV shows. It is everywhere. Now, in Isaiah 9, if you don't know much about Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet, and Isaiah's prophecies relate to the nation of Israel, and they, he's essentially addressing the nation of Israel in three time periods, right? Before the exile, during the exile, and after the exile. And if you're like, what's the exile? I'm like, I'm going to tell you. So the exile, the exile was when Israel got into trouble with the Lord for hard-heartedness, rebellion, spiritual apathy, mistreating the wives of their youth, um, all kinds of things. But, but ultimately, they weren't worshiping the Lord, and they had gone after other gods. And so because of this, because of this hard-heartedness, God brought a kind of judgment upon Israel where they would be overwhelmed, overtaken, and then taken away into captivity, exiled out of their land. And then eventually, they would repent, and God would bring them back into the land. So Isaiah is addressing them before this happens, when it happens, and then after it happens. That's what the book of Isaiah is all about. So by the time we get to 9... The prophet has been explaining, listen, you're experiencing, experiencing spiritual darkness and heaviness. There is an emptiness in you, right? And, and judgment is coming. Judgment is going to come upon you. Discipline is going to come upon you. It, it's going to get bad, but it will not always be bad. It will not always be dark because there will come a time when God will provide salvation, redemption, recovery, restoration, and he's going to provide it in the form of an individual. In this case, he points out a child. For to us, a child is born. This is the promise of light and salvation, the son who would change everything, the son who would be everything 
that we need. Now, when we look at this, we know now, like it's very clear for us that, oh, for, to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. We're talking about Jesus. The New Testament verifies this. So we know that we're looking towards Jesus. But if you begin to think about it this way, like Jesus is a gift. The son was given. It's a gift. It might make you think that this seems inappropriate because gifts are like things that you purchase and then give to somebody else, right? Oftentimes we think of gifts that are, they are deserved or if they are, they're earned or something like that. Or we just think like it, it's, it's a trinket, it's, it's a commodity, a present, and shouldn't Jesus be bigger than that? It just feels a little odd to some people. It can sound nice, it can sound small. I was bragging, and I, I'm not ashamed to admit it, I was bragging in the first service that my small group, the small group that I'm a part of, is having like a... It's like a stocking exchange where everybody gets a stocking and then you get to put stuff in the stocking and then you give it away and then people fight for who has the best stocking. I have the best stocking. My, my stocking will be the best because I went to Timu and I ordered some cool stuff off of Timu. And so I, I'm gonna have a good stocking. It's already, it already came in. I'm early, good to go. My stocking's gonna be the winner, I think. I hope I can get it back because I kind of want that stuff. <laughs> so we think like, we got a gift. Oh, it's a gift. It's something that you give to somebody. And isn't Jesus bigger than a gift? Isn't Jesus supposed to be bigger than a t-shirt? Because I know, listen, I know that for a lot of people, for a lot of people and a lot of professing Christians, and I think even for some real Christians sometimes, our relationship to Jesus is sort of like um, our relationship to our favorite T-shirt. You got a favorite T-shirt? If you have a favorite T-shirt, you probably understand what I'm talking about. Your favorite T-shirt is something that you actually have feelings for. Like if you have a favorite T-shirt, like that T-shirt is... Mm, that is so cool. I love that T-shirt. You love how it fits. You love how it makes you feel. You get a sense of identity when you wear that T-shirt. Like, this is who I am, everybody. Check it out, you know? Maybe it's got something on the sleeve or something on the back or something on the front. Maybe it's got a message. Maybe it doesn't have a message at all. But your favorite T-shirt, right? You, it, you, you feel it. You, I mean, and, you, and you wear it. You feel like you're supposed to feel. And you wouldn't want to lose it. You wouldn't want to trade it. You wouldn't want to give it away. You wouldn't want to sell it. But in the end, it's just a It's just a T-shirt. And I think a lot of us have a faith uh, in Jesus that is a little bit like that, right? Like, oh, we identify with him. It makes us feel better, and it's good, but it's, it's not much more than a covering. It's, our faith is supposed to be more than this. Our faith is supposed to be a radical, a deep, it's a better word, a deep dependency on Jesus, who is so much more than a T-shirt, he does much more than this. And so, yes, Jesus is a gift given to us by God, but he is not just a gift. In fact, that something so great, so magnificent, so beautiful could be given as a gift is what makes the gospel so outrageous. The fact that God would give us his son to save the unworthy, to redeem the undesirable, to reclaim and to remake the disobedient that God would give his son, that God is essentially giving himself as the gift. Like this is amazing. It is borderline obnoxious. It's not appropriate. God, it's too much, right? That's what you would say. It's way too much. It doesn't make sense. But that's the outrageous nature of the gospel. The son is given to us. It says it here, Luke 2.11 repeats the same thing, that unto you this day, right, is born Jesus, the Son of God. So this gift is often misunderstood. It is often underappreciated. And we think this is how, this passage helps. 
Passages like it help because we underappreciate or undervalue Jesus because we know him to be good, we know him to be a savior, but we oftentimes don't understand the scope or the breadth of his saving work or who he is. And so that's what this passage is designed to do. This passage is designed to address the emptiness in humanity, the emptiness that is a consequence of sin, our sin, other people's sin. It's the, it's the self-inflicted wounds and, 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 the, and the desperation. It is, it is the, the guilt and the condemnation and everything that has eaten away at our humanity and left us somewhat hollow or empty. And what's ironic is that this, this emptiness, this, this hollowed out of ourselves actually brings with it a kind of weight, a burden. You think something's hollow, it's lighter, but for us, the emptying of our humanity through sin and guilt weighs us down. This is why we need a savior. This is why the people of God anticipated the coming of the Messiah for so long. So here, we're going to look to gain a better understanding that, 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 that in Jesus there is this fullness of God that is designed to fulfill our emptiness. And what we're going to see is that there are, there are essentially five qualities, five statements, five truths about Jesus that help us to have a, a, a fuller, rounder understanding of him that gives us the, the, the fullness of God in Christ. So we're going to look at it like this. What do we see in this passage? Jesus is king, Jesus is counselor, Jesus is mighty God, Jesus is everlasting father, and Jesus is prince of peace, right? That's gonna help us to get a bigger picture of Jesus than most of us tend to settle for, right? Maybe you might have one or two of these things in mind most of the time, but we aren't thinking about the others and we want to have all of them together. So, Jesus is king. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder right? Verse 7 says, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is king. The one who was born was born a king. The Jesus that we believe in, the Jesus that we follow, the Jesus that we worship, he is a king. It says the government rests upon his shoulder. You guys understand that, that metaphor, right? That we use that even today. Oh, he's, he's got a lot of, he's carrying a lot of weight, right? Oh, it's all on his shoulders now. She's got it. It's all on her shoulders. This is an expression, right? The responsibility rests with the person, the, the, someone else. Or you might even say it about yourself. I got so much weight on my shoulders. What you're saying is, is I am responsible for these things. And we, we see that the government rests upon the shoulder of Christ. He shoulders it. He bears it. It is his responsibility because it is his government. And it's not a worldly government. It's not an earthly government. It's not a city or a town or a country. It is a kingdom that is spiritual in nature. Jesus is a king who reigns over a kingdom that exists, that is here, that can be entered into, but cannot be seen with human eyes. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter uh, 17. being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And the reason they ask is because this was a debate and people have been anticipating that the, that the Messiah is going to arrive and he's going to establish a worldly kingdom, right? That has like, you know, 
candidates and campaigns, right, that are successful in, in implementing a, a resurgence. Like they want to see a renewal of Israel, and so they're waiting for a real political leader. And so they're asking, the Pharisees are asking when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's already here, but you can't see it because you don't have faith. The kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus makes this point again and again. And he knows as king that the kingdom is here because he's the one inviting everybody in. He's inviting everyone to belong. He is, he invites the outcasts, the, the renegades, the rebels, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. He, he invites those that are considered uh, beyond help, beyond redemption. But he also invites the self-righteous and the educated because they all have the same thing in common. They're all unworthy sinners who have been hollowed out by their own sin. They need redemption and restoration and forgiveness and cleansing. And the only way that this can happen is if they enter into this new kingdom that is spiritual where faith is what it costs to enter belief and in doing this they are remade refashioned and joined together as a new people jesus is this king whose government rests upon his shoulders and that it is spiritual in nature is repeated in many different ways let me give you one other example romans chapter 14 verse 17 says for the kingdom uh, is not a matter of eating and drinking right things that we would normally see in a kingdom uh, but it is of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And this government, right, isn't going to last just a term. It's not four years or eight years. Uh, this is a government that will never end. In fact, it's not just a government that will exist, but it is a government or a kingdom that will expand. It will continue to expand as more and more people continue to believe in the gospel and follow Jesus. Now, what makes this so amazing for us, right, and that we really need to grasp when we say that Jesus is a king, is that Jesus is a king like no other king, right, because... Uh, I don't want any of the world, I don't want, I don't want any more worldly kings. I mean, we have to have some rulers. We, we've got to vote for people, right? But I mean, I, I mean, at this point, I only watch any of the debates just to see how awful everybody is. Everybody's the worst. On both sides, everybody's the worst. I'm just embarrassed for everybody. And it doesn't mean that they don't say something good, like, oh, that's a good thing to say, but just wait a little while and they'll say something horrible later. Jesus is king like no other because Jesus doesn't just rule. He doesn't just rule perfectly and justly. Jesus as king loves. I mean, he genuinely loves. Jesus never sought the position. He always had the position. Jesus doesn't have to fake it. Jesus doesn't have to put on airs. He doesn't have to put out ads. He doesn't have to mislead and he doesn't have to, to sling mud or anything like that because he already is king, king now, king forever. And yet in that state, it is in him to love, to truly love. I mean, he extends love to everybody in the kingdom at the same level. He doesn't love the beautiful people more than, than the non-beautiful people, right, as who, how, however people might conceive of that. He doesn't look at, at, the, at the healthy versus the, the sick or, the, or the, those who have their lives together in some observable way as those who are in disarray. Jesus loves all of his people together the same, deeply, truly, intimately, and individually. He loves us as king. And as king, he serves, right? He serves, his love for us moves him to serve us as king. He is to be worshiped and obeyed, and yet he condescends to serve, to help us. 
He's a king that loves and serves so much that he sacrifices. He sacrifices himself to the point of death, death on a cross, by which we, that's how we are cleansed. His death is how we are actually made ready or fitted for the kingdom through faith in Jesus and what he did. He is a king like no other, and he is more than that, right? So this is the whole point. Jesus is more than we tend to think. He is bigger than we think. We gotta look at everything that scripture has to say and even recognize he's more than that. But we at least need to recognize what scripture says. So we see that he's king and he's more. In fact, we're told explicitly that he's more because here's his name. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name is Wonderful Counselor. So Jesus is king, number one. Number two, Jesus is counselor. Now, some scholars debate this, right? Does it say that Jesus is wonderful, that his name is wonderful, and then his name is counselor, or is it just saying Jesus' name is wonderful counselor? Doesn't matter so much. Uh, We can't know for sure. But either way, it's essentially saying the same thing. To say that Jesus is wonderful would mean that he is a wonderful counselor, right? So it's going to mean, it's going to ultimately wind up in the same spot. To say that Jesus is wonderful is to say that he is astounding, that this counselor is somehow miraculous. The word, the word is that has lost all meaning today because today the word just means cool. It, all, it, it can just mean okay. The word is awesome, right? That's the word. Hey man, I pick up seven. Awesome. We just used it as okay. But what does awesome mean? It means that something is so grand, so big, so magnificent, so magical, so miraculous that it fills us with awe. It is awe-inducing. Jesus is awe-inducing. That's how big he is. He is wonderful, but he's not just wonderful. He is a wonderful counselor. And this is not just therapy. It doesn't mean therapist. Jesus is not your therapist. You probably need a therapist like I have. You probably need a therapist. We've got some therapists here. They need therapists, by the way. But that's not what we're talking about. Jesus is a counselor, a wonderful counselor. And there's some overlap with therapy for sure. But to say that Jesus is a counselor means that he offers counsel, that he speaks. He's a savior who speaks. He's, he, he, is a, he is a God who is alive and speaks truth. He speaks wisdom. And yes, what he says matters because he is God. But the reason you really need to listen is because when he speaks, he is speaking to someone that he knows. He can speak wisdom to you because he knows you. He knows your frame. He knows your frailty. He knows what you can handle and what you can't, what will break you and what will make you. He knows what is too much and what is too little. And sometimes we need to be broken. Sometimes we need to be built up. Jesus speaks wisdom to us, to challenge us, to correct us, to change us, to equip us. That's the kind of counselor that Jesus is. He knows you and because he knows you, he can guide you. This is who Jesus is. He is so much bigger. Now, how does Jesus speak, right? Well, listen, I'll be honest. I think Jesus has spoken to us in his word. When you read the word of God, it is the, it is the voice of God. It is, the, it is the word of Christ, right? The gospel is the word of Christ, and so we should read this. But oftentimes, what God does in speaking to us is he takes the things that are in the word of God and brings, us to, brings them to our mind, right? So sometimes he impresses the things that are in scripture upon our mind, things that we have read or heard from somebody else or as we've been reading At some point, he'll bring them back into our memory and impress them upon our hearts in a very specific way at a very specific time to challenge us and to correct us. Jesus is a wonderful counselor, which means that we need to have a 
a readiness and a willingness to listen to him, to listen to his word. This is why so many of us get into, get into trouble. Okay, so Jesus is king. Yes, he is king and he is to be obeyed, but he is also a wonderful counselor. So when he speaks, you should listen. He, he, is, he is not a tyrant, right? He is not just a, a ruler. He is not just some sort of distant leader who is coldly issuing statements or, or giving you an agenda. He is a counselor who knows you, loves you, wants to guide you, and will walk with you. So when he speaks, listen, heed his word. Jesus is king. Jesus is counselor. Jesus is mighty God. You see that? His name shall be called Mighty God. Now, I know some people might think, like, well, that, doesn't the Bible do that a lot? Like, they'll just give people names. Like, the name Jesus, right, it means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. And then other people have that name. Well, sure. But what's being said here is, is, is a little bit different from that. Jesus, it, his name shall be called Mighty God. This is, this is a phrase that's used in the book of Isaiah. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 10, just one page over Isaiah 10, 21, it says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob. So post-exile, right? So there's going to be judgment. There's going to be discipline for the nation, for their waywardness. But then, then a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. This child's name is mighty God. Not because he reflects mighty God, but because he is mighty God, because he will do the things that only mighty God can do, establish a kingdom, reign forever redeem people, provide atonement for sins. He is mighty God. And if you know this son, you know God. And of course, Jesus speaks this way about himself and he gets into trouble for it. For example, in John 10, 30, right? He says, the father and I are one. When Jesus talks like that, what do the Pharisees want to do? The people that have been schooled in the law and know the Bible as good as anybody. When they hear Jesus say things like the father and I are one, they pick up stones to crush his skull because what he is saying in their minds is heresy because he is equating them himself with the father, which he is. That is exactly what he's doing. He is equating himself with the father. He says he has the authority to forgive sins. This is why they pick up stones to stone him because in their minds, the only person that can talk like that is God and you're talking like that. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. I and the Father are one. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So hang on, nobody's ever seen God. Okay, God is a spirit. And to really see him in full would, would be consumed. So no one has ever seen God. The only God, now this is, who's this? The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So here we're, we're told again, Jesus is God and he makes known God. He is the perfect revelation, the full revelation of God. He is mighty God. In Colossians 2.9, Paul says, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. This is Jesus, mighty God. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. We're getting here. This is the very end of John's first letter. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true 
And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is the Jesus that we believe in, that we're supposed to believe in, that we get to believe in. This is the true Jesus of Nazareth, son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, lived, crucified, dead, buried, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven and coming again. This is him. And this should change everything for us to understand that this is the living savior that we believe in, that we have access to, that we are united to. Jesus is not a comfort blanket. Jesus is not a cause. Jesus is bigger than all of that. He is king, counselor, mighty God, and he is everlasting father. That one's weird, right? Everlasting father. Because if you're a Christian, if you know the Christian tradition, if you know our theology, you know that we believe that there is only one God. One God. Do not be confused. There is only one God. But this one God does eternally exist in three persons. There you go. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mystery time. Okay. Um, and it's true. It's good. It's magnificent. And we can, we can comprehend a little bit of that, a little bit of that. Uh, but there is so much mystery there. But we know that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son, so why is he here called Everlasting Father? And just for the record, that, that God is called Father in general, and it's, uh, we, we see throughout Scripture, I mean, it begins in Deuteronomy and goes all the way to Malachi. Well, let's, I'll read one, Malachi 2.10. Um, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us all? That's a paralytic a parallel poetic sort of way of saying the same thing, right? We all have one Father, and one God has created us all. In other words, we all come from the same one. We're all, so then why are we faithless to one another? We should be living differently if we all have the same God, the same Father. So to say that Jesus is the everlasting Father, I think the simplest way to put it is to say that this is said of the Son who was coming because he has headship, a connected authority, it means that he is the head of his people. To say that he is the father indicates that there is a relational component here so that it's not merely in ways that we might conceive like political or social. There is a relational familial dynamic. And while it's not making the point that Jesus is the father, to say that his name is everlasting father indicates that that he will be the head of his people now and forever. He will always be the, 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 this, this figure, and he is in a sense, right? We can see that, that Jesus functions in this way, right? As, as an example, as a leader, as a helper. I mean, to, depending on your age, I can be a father figure, right? Or I can be a brother or a little nephew. It depends on, it depends on where we're at, right, in our ages. And so um, it's like we can, we can sort of figure out like, oh, there, there are these different ways of relating to each other. So Jesus relates to some people in that father figure way. But I think the point being made here is that he is the head of his people. He is the one in whom we are all connected. Let me give you one just simple passage. Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 22. It says, And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of all in all. Jesus is 
everlasting Father, always caring, leading, serving, sacrificing, relationally, it's connected to his love for us. He is never to be replaced. This is Jesus, King, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, Prince, again, indicating sonship, but also indicating royalty, leadership. And the idea here is the emphasis is not so much that he is a prince. That's not like the main point. The main point is that he is a prince of peace, right? He is, he is not the kind of leader that just is looking to start wars. In fact, he, that's not, Jesus isn't starting wars. Jesus is bringing about peace. The war has already been raging. That Jesus establishes peace. Yes, he conquers enemies to establish peace for everybody who is willing to come and to sit under his reign. He ends the wars. He establishes peace. What the Jews called shalom, Right? And shalom is such a big part of the promises of God all throughout the Old Testament. And it's not just about the absence of conflict and there's no more wars. For the Jewish people, shalom was about rest and health and wholeness and safety and happiness. It was this big concept of true redemption, true expanding peace. Listen to Ephesians Uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 22 here. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. It's a new group of people. In place of the two, Jew and Gentile, So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's the peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, establishes peace between sinners and God through his death on the cross. And he does this act of peace. And in doing so, he brings people together who are not at peace with each other, but are at odds or separated, whether that's culturally, religiously, morally, right? He brings people together. He's mentioning Jew and Gentile. We are now one body. We become one family in Jesus. This is Jesus. He is king, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. He is prince of peace. The fullness of God in Jesus is what can fulfill. It is the only thing that can fulfill the emptiness in humanity. See, the emptiness, you'll feel it in different ways. The effect of sin, the curse of sin. We all know it. And whether you're a Christian or not, you know this. You still feel it, right? There's, some of us are afraid. And some of us are angry because of sin and brokenness. Some of us are, are needy and broken. Some are tired and doubting. Some are filled with sorrow. Some are lacking purpose. Some are feeling guilty and ashamed. Some of us check all of the above at the bottom of that list. I do. I check all of the above. I am oftentimes all of these things 
It is the, the kind of the emptiness that you feel when your sin is either taking root or being particularly problematic or you're experiencing a lot of temptations or you're facing a lot of spiritual assaults. And this is why we need to understand that the Savior that we believe in, the, the Savior that we follow, the Jesus that we worship is so much bigger than what many of us have been led to believe. We have 66 books in the Bible that all tell us about God and the gospel. It tells us about Jesus and the Spirit, and we need to read it, seek to understand it all to have a fuller picture of Jesus. Let me give you one other passage. It's in Colossians, and we've read it earlier in the service. We're going to read it again. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, because this is the Jesus that is. This is the Jesus that offers himself to you. Whether you're a Christian or not, he offers himself to you to believe, to receive. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, He, Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the Jesus that is gifted to sinners. This is the Jesus that offers himself to us. He can fulfill our needs, our brokenness, because the fullness of God is in him. Jesus is that savior. So if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, I want Christmas, even if you're into it, or if you're not into it, I, I want you to see Christmas as simply another opportunity to be drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can take or leave all of the accoutrements and the trees and the lights and all that stuff, but the person of Jesus Christ and who he is really, who, who he truly is and what he has actually accomplished, I'm praying that you and I would see this with greater clarity and that it has a real impact on our hearts, on our faith that we wouldn't despair or give up in the midst of struggle or discouragement, that, that we would be confident in the life that's let, that is laid out before us, whether we chose it or not, that, that we would offer this to anyone who would be willing to listen because we have come to see that Jesus is a true Savior. This is an offer to not just Christians who need re reformation and revival in our hearts, but it's an offer to anyone non-Christians, unbelievers, people who have previously hated God or the church and had nothing, no interest in Jesus, the same offer is to you. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. If you're a sinner, Jesus offers himself to you. He is the one you need. He is everything that we need. Let's look to him together as we pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would um, encourage us all today. And I pray that you would draw every individual here close to Christ. If someone doesn't know Jesus, I pray that today they would be drawn for the first time, that they would believe, that they would trust, 
that they would give their hearts to Christ, that they would repent of sin. I pray, God, that, that if, if we're Christian and we're here and we've been wayward or spiritually cold, that today would be a day of revival, that you would, that you would spark something new in our hearts, that we would see that you are truly worthy of love, honor, devotion, obedience, and worship, and that we are so blessed to be able to do this. God, we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.